Welcome to Vase, a podcast about weird stuff. I'm Peter C. Hine, and joining me as always is my old friend, co-host, and phenomenological being whose complex motivations cannot be understood by reference to a simplistic model of anthropocentric cognition alone, Mr. Stephen James Buckley. Thank you. That's a fantastic introduction, as per usual. I don't know why I make them so difficult for myself. <laughs> that's just that's just you, isn't it? Uh, yeah, so we have a guest with us tonight. He is one of the UK's most respected researchers in the realms of ufology, the unexplained, and the supernatural. He has over 1,000 hours of mainstream alternative TV programs under his belt. He's the head tutor for the British and US investigators training courses in ufological studies and the CEO of Phenomena magazine, the world's largest e-zine of its kind, distributed in 12 countries and four languages to over 1.8 million subscribers. Subscribers. He's an accomplished author of several books, which I won't list here because, you know, we need to actually do the podcast. Um, he's the founder of the Scientific Establishment of Parapsychology and the chairman of MAPIT, Manchester's Aerial Phenomenon Investigation Team. I'm going to stop with this list now because it's a, such an impressive list, but I'd just like to to start questioning this man. We have with us tonight Mr. Steve Merrer. Hello, Steve. Hello, Steve. Uh, thanks. <laughs> thanks for having me on. And Steve is a fellow northerner. We didn't pick him because of that, but it helped. <laughs> so that's a really really varied cv that you have there unbelievable i mean we have a lot of people on base who are multidisciplinarians but your career really has been extremely varied it is yeah i mean that's quite the digested vision you've got to digest it down because it's simply 40 years of work trying to wrap up something in, in a few minutes of what i've done over the years but um I think a big part of that is obviously the edu well, what I call edutainment, because it's entertainment, it's educational. I'm trying it. I also always try to make it very interesting about the things I talk about. I won't talk about anything I can't prove, you know, because there's one difference. I when you go, to, you know, you go to a lot of these events, UFO conferences, conventions. There really are some interesting stuff, but you know what, most of it is just stories without any evidence. And though they're interesting, for me it's about science, for me it's about the evidence. Um, so everything I've actually put together and produced over the years is simply based on factual evidence. And some of the stuff is being peer-reviewed, you know, regarding the research that we've more uh, been recently in the last five, six years anyway at least. So, yeah, it's, it's hard to... Uh, to draw it all into one great big sentence, but uh, I've done pretty much everything you can in this subject. Um, the radio, the television, started writing for TV, ended up in front of the camera, and then that just went crazy. And I did corporate and private confidential investigations for 16 years for companies and with the police for across the UK, and residential investigations. Uh, more paranormal based because it's difficult really physically investigating UFO or the UAP phenomenon now they want to term it that way. Um, but uh, probably over about, around about 800 different paranormal cases and they, they still come in on a regular basis and you know sometimes you know you've got to cherry pick sometimes because I just don't have the time to do as much as I would like to do. There never is enough hours in the day uh, and of course with writing and uh, the courses um, and our events that we have. So it's just one great big world of the subject which I like to be involved in. So, yeah, 40 years is a, is a, there's a lot I've achieved over 40 years. For me, it doesn't seem it, you know, but when you look back, when you see all the things you've done, you think, blimey, you know, <laughs> you lose track of what you've done in the past, you know. 
how did you get started? I mean, like, because you, your career seems to have just like snowballed as it's gone along. But how did it, where was the beginnings of you getting interested in the paranormal, in UFOs, in cryptids, ghosts, and that kind of thing? Well, I think it was really young age. I think it was about, about 11 or 12. My father was into the subject of UFOs and he had quite a number of books on the subject. Brad Steiger, Inside the UFO. Um, also, Eric von Daniken's Chats of the Gods and things like that. So, you know, I, I was interested. I thought, why has my dog got these books? And um, started looking at them, became interested. Uh, and that's basically tweaked my fascination, to be honest with you. Um, and, of course, after leaving school, I, um, I joined a local organisation, did my first investigation in Liverpool in 1983, and uh, and then I kind of started writing for numerous different magazines. I wrote, I don't know, there's an old magazine called Woman's Own. I don't know if you remember that one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I used to write the columns on it, especially regarding paranormal things and stuff. And some of them were really crazy, you know, because women wanted to hear how, how a poltergeist uh, is jealous of my lover and just really strange, really wacky stuff. But they loved it. Um, so then I started writing for New Woman magazine in the US, um, and then I expanded into other areas, writing for television, um, and then just one day by chance I ended up in front of the camera, and, uh, and that kind of stuck. So I ended up doing loads of television programs over the years. Um, I think the next one will be Unsolved Mysteries, that I'll start filming next month. Oh, fantastic. Oh, right. So it's been... Uh, the whole scenario just kind of it just kind of exploded from there on. I think um and I wondered that that sort of just occurred to me when you were explaining it. It's maybe a bit of a deep question for this early in the podcast, but I'm just gonna go for it. Do you think dealing with this sort of stuff on a daily basis can take a toll on you? Oh my god, yeah. Absolutely, yeah, I could tell you living at my house for a month. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know what they say about bringing your home, your work home with you. You do, you yeah. really do. Uh, only in the fields of the paranormal, mostly. Um, though you do get some elements of the UAP stuff. So, uh, and then they both go hand in hand on many occasions. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's kind of the problem is with this subject is it's great having an interest, but when you press it too much and you do too much, especially in, regarding any form of interactive phenomena then sometimes that door is is ajar slightly and it never really closes and then you find yourself um having disturbances or strange things around you um in your life you know and you start seeing things profoundly more regular than you should ever do um and you think to yourself well why all of a sudden am i seeing ufos why all of a sudden are strange things happening you know, and um, yeah, it's it, it does infect your life. And if you're quite happy to do that, you know, maybe I shouldn't have got too heavily involved when I was younger because you know uh, I had to. I'd, obviously, my children was, was you know, had to take them into consideration and stuff. But um, um, as I've got older, I've kind of uh, with lesser responsibilities of bringing up children, you know, because they fled they fled the nest. Um, I really delved into where those areas are, you know, that high strangeness phenomena. And to be honest, don't bother me now 
you know it's just another weird incident you know I've got used to it over the years um, along with my partner she's got used to it you know it's just one of those things but yes it can do it depends on how far you really want to get into this subject but if you start dealing on a kind of one-to-one -one basis with this phenomenon well, and you're communicating and interacting with this phenomenon then yeah you can certainly be adversely affected by it and it's you know what it's, it's like a you know, it's like a spine that will never come out of your skin. It's, it's, it's just, you just can't get rid of it. It just hangs around. Uh, you might have quiet times, but then you do times when it just goes crazy. You know, sometimes it's associated with the work we're doing. It's as if the phenomenon is aware of some of the research we're conducting. And it doesn't just affect me. It affects people in my team or, you know, or, or people who I work with that are doing the same, or working on the same project information. Sometimes we get, it seems like it's we get a slap on the hand to mm. say you know, you've been naughty. <laughs> you know, in a sense, yeah. it's so ridiculous, but that's the only way I can describe it. John Keel talked about a very similar phenomena, didn't he? You know, and, and he was a obviously he was having ufo sightings all over the place you know uh, constantly um he had those the phone calls you know when he was in the middle of cases and things would would get weird and uh, i've heard you talk about the hitchhiker effect before is is this the kind is this what you're talking about here yeah i mean um, i mean it doesn't just associate itself in the paranormal aspects but in the ufo aspects as well it does yeah absolutely um all sorts of weird and crazy things i mean you experience things sometimes which you just think you know you've seen it somebody else was with you when you saw it and you really do question your sanity you say well did i just see that and it's only because somebody else went oh my god you know and they saw the same described the same thing is that okay i'm not going daft um, but what's the chances of that? I mean, nobody in a lifetime would think to experience something so profound. And yet, you have to kind of take it lightly. Otherwise, you just go pretty nuts with it, really, to be honest. Yeah. One thing that you said which stuck out to me was you were talking about interacting on a one-to-one -one basis with the phenomena. Can you give an example of where you've done that that you're allowed to talk about? Uh, well, yeah. I mean, some of the projects that we're involved in. Um, I mean, initially, on the paranormal side, we... There's some famous um, investigation and experiments taken out in the 1990s called the Skull Experiment. Yes. You're aware of that. Yeah, yeah. The advanced Skull Experiments were conducted um, uh, with people from Scotland, friends of mine. Um, so I have a great deal of knowledge about what was gleaned and the events that happened and so on and so forth. Um, also, regarding the initial stuff uh, that happened in Skull, that isn't really documented, to be honest with you. You won't find it in the Skull books, you won't find it in their research, it's just stuff that they won't publicise, which I'm aware of. Could you explain for our listeners what the Skull experiment was? Absolutely. Um, it was over a series of several years, and um, the Skull experiment was, um, was trying to, were initiated as a mediumistic um, experiment regarding certain people who were trying to find the evidence of spiritual communication. I'm not going to say afterlife because really, I might get into that a little bit later because the parapsychological departments rule that there's no evidence of afterlife and I can tell you the reasons why a little bit later but um, what they achieved was incredible and then a number of scientists, magicians, researchers, all sorts of specialists attended those meetings and experienced the phenomena first hand. Um, 
until until a point when they could not go no longer, become dangerous, and they couldn't go any further, so it came to a halt. I think it did. However, um, some short time later, um, some further experiments took place with people I know from Scotland. In advance. This is what was referred to as advanced skull experiments. And they were privy to experiencing some crazy stuff. And, um, and I took it from there is a project known as Phenomena Project um, regarding um, communications. Uh, you, know, you could say a form of instrumental transcommunication, but um, over a long period of time, which was established to the point of DVP, direct voice phenomena, which is always above you for some reason. <laughs> if you stand up, it's above you. It's just above you. Um, and uh, that was well-established communications. And that and led into the hitchhiker effect. Uh, on the UAP front, we have Project Doorway, which is the current one which is running at the moment, Advanced Study of Aerial Phenomena. And our interactions, when well, we travelled all over the world into several, many different countries conducting experiments. And um, when we are experiencing the phenomena firsthand, and this isn't just something that's just travelling past by chance, uh, this is a manifestation of the phenomena and it interacts with us, um, that also uh, can be a bit somewhat of the hitchhiker effect as well. So it can kind of comes from both sides. Yeah, I mean, it's really, really fascinating. And particularly because you've worked um, in a lot of uh, scientific experiments in the phenomena. And of course, this raises questions, I suppose, from what you were just saying about the role of the observer in the phenomena. Yeah, and, and obviously that links very roughly to quantum theory, you know, and, and the role of the observer in, I mean, to take a simple one, you've got the slit experiment with uh, whether light behaves as particles or waves. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that? Yes, yeah, I mean, there's the, the, the double slit experiment or the dual slit experiment, obviously. Um, it demonstrates the fact that um, the, at an atomic level, uh, electron level, uh, of any item is affected when we actually observing it. It acts differently. And then when we're not observing it, it acts, uh, it, default, it changes to a default pattern. Um, that is what we expect to find normally in the world of our physics is to expect a default pattern no matter what. But what we found was, um, is that when there is observation of this taking place, the outcome and the is, is different. So where there's obviously an effect through observation, which means, I mean, if we think and apply that to the poltergeist infestation phenomena, that rarely do anybody actually see items initiate movement. You might see them flying through, already being propelled, but the initiation of movement is highly, highly documented not to be seen. Um, and I think that the fact is, is that sometimes we can affect the, the outcome. Um, I mean, I'll give you a typical example. I was in um, an animal investigation in York in 2001, and uh, it was a poltergeist infestation, and uh, myself and a couple more researchers from the scientific establishment of parapsychology were there and um, we were in discussion with each other sat on a 13 there's, this, there's a chair opposite us with a cushion on there and we all suddenly thought because something drew our eyes of movement and we all looked immediately at this cushion 
which wasn't moving when we looked at it. And yet something, you know, it's that, it's that effect when your eyes are drawn to movement naturally is a predatorial thing. We all instantly looked at this cushion and thought to ourselves, well, we must have something. Sure, just didn't we just see that shift a little bit, just shake or something? And they all agreed they had, and we watched it and watched it and watched it, and it never did anything. And it was only when we all took our eyes off it, it flung itself across the room. So um, I started writing out the, uh, uh, the theoretics of what we might refer to as paranormal mechanics. And I wrote uh, a very large document on this about paranormal mechanics. Um, in the, especially starting in the realms of poltergeist infestation and how, if you break it down, there is a mechanics involved in intelligence mechanics um, that we might be affecting the outcome of the event taking place because we're observing it, which is a bit like the dual slit experiment. Hence, this is why people will often say, well, I saw this object move, but when you really get to the crux of the matter, the object was already in movement. You know, these might have seen it through, fly through the air, and they just saw it. But they never actually, when you really get to the crux of the matter, they don't actually see it really just suddenly move. Um, and that was one of the faults I thought they found in the Poltergeist movie, which Steven Spielberg did. <clears throat> and I have to say, it's the greatest scene in any movie when the parapsychologists sit down at the table and they say, I just want to tell you, you, you know, this house isn't haunted. And then the cup just slides across in front of them. <laughs> it's not haunted, it's a poltergeist. But it was just that, that absolute killer scene, it really was. But we actually saw the cup move from each other, and that doesn't really regularly get reported at all. Um, people get mixed up about that, but when you really delve into it, um, they tend to have seen it during the process of moving and not initiated. So, yeah, I think I maybe have some connection with the dual slit experiment and how the observer effect affects the outcome. Because it's similar to uh, sort of cybernetics as well, isn't it? It's got that like feedback loop aspect where, you know, the, what, what you were essentially just describing about how the, the longer you spend looking at it and the more time you spend in that world, it loops back on itself and you, exactly. you, up, you know, it, it kind of feeds back into your brain. And like, really I mean, you, what we're really not aware of, um, and this is, quite recent discovery that we've made part on Project Doorway over the last maybe eight months, uh, which is just currently being peer-reviewed, that there's a certain conditions that are happening to us during the experience of witnessing something. Now, be it a poltergeist or uh, if you were to say, okay, somebody saw an apparition, What's happening to the, the brain at that time is very interesting because we know now by using specialized um, mobile flow meters that measure brainwave activity during the investigation or experience, um, we can measure the brainwave activity and we can see how the brain is being manipulated by the phenomena. And what happens is, is that during, even during our waking conscious mode, we are slipping into theta wave and that is happening during high paranormal experiences like seeing apparitions it's happening during uh, you know ufo close encounters people see things uh, in the sky and you know they're absolutely bedazzled by them and they're watching them uh, unknowingly that they're actually slipping the phenomena is somehow inducing them into slip into a theta brainwave mode um, and that, there's a reason I think the phenomenon does that, and, that's, and that is the number one thing, is manipulation. 
You know, it's easy to manipulate us under those conditions as opposed to our normal conscious behavior of the, of the brain during waking process. And so we're finding, we really are pushing the boundaries and finding a lot of things that are starting to sort of put a picture together. There's a lot more going on that meets the eye. And of course, you know, we are the most limited creature on the planet regarding sensory, you know, our senses. So we have to, we have to consider how much are we missing? And we're missing a lot, you know, um, and we have to rely on equipment to tell us those things now. that you seem to be coming at it from a similar angle to us when you talk about the phenomenon uh, as in you see it as there's no differentiation between cryptids ufos ghosts you know it doesn't matter it's all the same thing yeah, it, doesn't, it doesn't really matter we calculated through the high amount of research on cryptid sightings that there's over 70 percent of reported incidents throughout the cryptid phenomena that are identical to the UAP. Yeah. Uh, that's just over 70%. Over 40% of it is paranormal association. Yeah, I mean, just a, just a disorientation, the smell of ozone uh, or sulfur. Um, you know, the, the, the whole aspects of it is, an inter, is, is entwined within the UAP or UFO phenomena and the paranormal. Yeah. So that's what we did with Project Doorway is that we took, we believed it had been at some point, very cleverly, the compartmentalization between the subjects stops us from getting all the answers. You know, the UFO guys won't deal with the paranormal guys, the paranormal guys won't deal with the UFO guys. And really, they're not going to get a full picture of what's going on until they tear all those walls down. So what we decided to do is look at it as a whole, hence phenomenology, and, uh, and we suddenly realized the connectivity and association between all this phenomena. Um, and that is, it can't be by chance, you know, it just, it just simply cannot be. Um, and obviously we have to look at it now as the source, the source, whatever is that source, uh, somehow is utilising the physics that are associated with all three. Yeah, I mean, it's like um, it's like Jack Vallée said, because he, he came to a similar conclusion looking at like the data in terms of like the, the raw data of what, what happened in these situations and the results as well, like the results being that, you know, often these UFO experiences end up with some kind of psychic component. So have you got like a sort of almost grand unified theory or is this something you're working towards that you feel explains everything or is that something that you don't think we will ever know? It's that ultimate question, isn't it? It's a real tricky one. But, but, I mean, if you look at the experiments, the CRS experiment that took place a couple of years ago, which was three years of using artificial intelligence computers, the best ones in the world, it took three years to feed all the data into this system regarding all cryptids, all paranormal, all UFO stuff, anything. But not just that, but the actual sub-subjects and the sub-sub-subjects of that and so on and so on. So all the little 
bits of mechanism that make up an event was all thrown into the computer and they expected to see if the AI could work out conclusively what was responsible for it all. What was interesting, they expected to get reams and reams of information out of it, and it's actually a couple of lines. But it was interesting what the AI said, because the AI said that it believed it because of the connectivity and association between all these things, it saw it as a single source. And a single source that has the capabilities of creating physical manifestations of physical constructs. They actually said constructs, so, you know, I mean, I'm a physical construct, you know. Uh, you know, I mean, because a lot of phenomena is, is interactive to the point where it is physical. So is that a physiological construct, you know? Is, so we have to question, you know, why is the AI thinking that? So, I mean, if we're dealing for an example, an old earthly phenomena known as the paranormal and an extraterrestrial phenomena, then you wouldn't really expect to get so much association in physics. And yet we do. Because the UAP phenomenon is much more at home than it is out in space. It's, uh, it's an old terrestrial phenomenon. Uh, though that it does have its ties with extraterrestrial origins, but not in a linear fashion from travelling from, through space and stuff. Um, but um, on a component of, of metaphysics from jumping from one reality to another. So this is why we get the manifestation, the sudden disappearance, the sudden um, materialization. Um, and we know this because I mean, we did an experiment on, um, uh, on an airport, an airported mug. And the airported mug had, you know, when we, when we took it for atomic analysis and we tested it against a normal mug of the same type, um, there was no difference between them. You'd never tell the difference between them, even if we swapped them. Um, but the computer system, when analysing the apported mug, um, would suggest that it was not the mug that left. Because though it, we can't tell the difference, but the computer knows the difference. Uh, and one of those biggest things that stuck out was the incredible diathermic reaction that had taken place in the apported mug. Um, and we knew that we'd seen this before, and it took some time to find it, but it was because it wasn't in our paranormal files, it was in the UAP stuff. And that was when UFOs manifest close to the ground, and scientists have been out and taken plant samples because this affected the, the plants in the area. And that's known as biological plant traumatology testing. And when you look at that, it's exactly the same the diathermic reaction. Uh, is that the plants have absorbed as the mug has got. So we suggest maybe then, okay, so the manifestation of a UFO, close to ground or not, and the manifestation of a mug suddenly appearing in a poltergeist-type incident are utilising the same physics here. And the biggest question is, why? Why should they be, have that association? Yeah.
of the things that's really interesting about your work is how that you've championed the role of the modern scientific method um, in investigating the phenomena. Uh, but why do you think that modern mainstream science has largely turned its back on the phenomena, mainly on the, for the most part? Uh, well, you know, most of the time, I mean, when we want to reach out to this phenomenon, what's the first thing we do? We go onto YouTube, we go onto the internet, we look around at people. And you know what? The world is full of people conducting paranormal investigations, UFO uh, sky watches and stuff like that. Um, the biggest problem that we have in this subject is us. <laughs> I'll be honest with you. It's, it's researchers because we have a belief system. You know, and we are easily manipulated. Even our perception is manipulated by this phenomenon. So you can never take anything verbatim, you know, because people can be so manipulated into thinking that they've seen something completely different. We knew this back in the 80s when you had several witnesses together. One says it's green, the other one says it's red. Oh, no, it was round. Oh, no, it wasn't. It was square. And you think it's all stood together. What's going on? You know, because we now know that everybody perceives differently. We all see differently. You know, and this is a big problem in regarding really close examination of a, of, a, of an incident. Um, so we knew back then, obviously, you know, that we're going to have obviously these types of incidents and problems, trying to figure out exactly what was seen, um, because you have to take the human element out of it. That's a big problem, mm. you know. So that has hindered scientific research a lot because. You know, it's just people relying on their own instinctual experience to say conclusively what it was. Um, and that we cannot do. We cannot rely on that. Uh, so we, once we take us out of the equation and rely more on scientific equipment, I have to say, you know, there's some dodgy stuff out there. It might blink nice, nice lights and stuff, but at the end of the day, it's absolutely useless. But there are, if you really have to spend a lot of money on specialised scientific equipment to reach your goals. Um, it's not easy, it's not meant to be easy. It's meant to be expensive, it's meant to be time consuming. But it, the worth, it's worth it. It's worth it when you get the right gear. And, uh, and now we have some incredible pieces of equipment which we never could have dreamt of 10 years ago, five years ago. You know, so, uh, and we now we're utilising some of those things to tell us what's going on in the environment, uh, what, what, what we might not be aware of after, prior or during an experience. Does it concern you that the phenomenon might adapt to that equipment and change what it's doing? Oh, yeah, I mean, the phenomenon's not adapt. Sometimes it won't even interact if it's got certain phenomena it's monitoring it, uh, sorry, certain equipment, but... You know, they tend to know that sort of stuff. There's been many a times when we've been on location and, and it just won't manifest and whilst we've got certain things running, especially cameras and things like that. And we have to, as soon as we put them away, it's a whole different ball game. We start to rely on just us. Because that's what the phenomenon likes. likes to just us. Because we're so easily manipulated. And, uh, and of course... Um, that happens in the paranormal as well as the UAP stuff. They can be, but then there are at times when they're quite demonstrative, you know. Most of the time they're not. They don't really like us being around most of the time. All the good stuff's happening. Why do people say it's all happening out in the deserts? It's all happening out in these areas? Because no, none of us are around, <laughs> you know. And, uh, and I've been, you have to purposely visit to those locations to experience the phenomena firsthand. But when you're there, they act as if you're intruding. You know, and you've stepped on their toes. They seem to not like it, you know, um, and uh, they demonstrate in certain ways. So, 
um, I would say, you know, they they can be had. Um, there's nothing you can keep from them because, just as in the paranormal, you know, we now know through the phenomena of displacement um, uh, that um, they can figure out what's going on, even what we're thinking. Hence, the the the, the experiments we achieved in advanced skull stuff was to the point where we were at, we were told we could ask ten questions. Which is interesting because I always wanted to ask certain questions, but when it came to the point after realizing that we could get the answers, there was a little bit of reluctancy to what questions to ask, to be honest. Do I really want to know? And I, I found myself in that situation. I, I mean, I could have, any other time, years before, I would have reeled them off. Oh, I want to know about this. I want to know about that. But at the time when, you know, when it all hit the fan, I was like, a little bit hesitant. Do want to know the answer, really? And is is that even that answer true, or is it manipulated? What was interesting that they delivered all ten answers prior prior to us even giving the question, so they knew what we were going to tell him. We knew what they were going to say, and uh, they delivered it. So that's a problem in the paranormal because how many people go for readings and. You know, and the phenomena, somebody's picking up and saying, well, you know, well, it's your grandma, it's your grandfather, or they've got this message for you and stuff. We really have to question now, is it? Because they know what we're thinking and can deliver it exactly what we expect. And that is, like I said earlier, the, you know, why parapsychology departments will not rule evidence of afterlife is because whatever we are communicating with, there's plenty of evidence of that. Uh, I'm happy to agree with that. But it's the authenticity behind it, and if it's manipulated by something else, then we can't say it's spiritual communication. And if it's not spiritual communication, then it doesn't support the evidence of afterlife. So it's, you know, it's a real messy situation. They could just as easily be saying, "Yeah, we're from uh, we're from this star system, and we're we're from space." It's just the same principle, isn't it? It's like oh, they've done that right from the early days, even from the metaphysical society became the Brill Society. Yeah, the phenomena did that to them, yeah. um, and started giving them information pertaining to advanced technology. But they never gave them enough to for them to achieve what they wanted. They never do. That's why in the 1970s, Boeing and Bell got together in seances to try and find out communication-wise. You know, can they get information pertaining to advanced aerial uh, aeronautics? And they only got some bits, but never, never did they actually give a full picture. They never do. They yeah. will never give us something complete. It's always little pieces of it. But the problem is, is that this phenomenon draws you in. It entices your imagination. It excites you. And you think, wow, this is amazing. And the more, the more you do it. The more you do it, the more this phenomena, you know, unknowingly to the participants and scientists and experiences, it's getting under the skin. It's, it's, it's developing itself with those people. And then it, suddenly they find out, uh-oh, I'm away from the experiment, but I'm still experiencing the phenomena. And that is when you have attachment. And sometimes, you know, sometimes things aren't bad. Sometimes there's a sting in the tail. Robert Bigelow went through the same process after doing too much, really, in such a short period of time. Experiments really, he obviously didn't realise that it did have this effect on, uh, on occasion, and three other NIDS scientists as well. So oh, yeah. Yeah, it can have a sting in its tail sometimes, depending on how far you push.
You've talked a bit about how the phenomena is more interested in us than the equipment and how it draws you in and it gets under your skin. It get, you get attachments. And we've talked about the observer effect. Do you think that the phenomena is something that can be separated from humans or do you think there's a human component to it? Uh, I think there's a human component to it. I think it's, I think it's, it's like a conduit of phenomena that's taking place uh, where the two, the two meet your observer effect, the phenomena. And it's a pairing, a channeling of those two um, things. And then that's when those type of incidents can happen. And the problem is, is that it's, it's, it's what goes on afterwards. And sometimes those are, go on for far longer. And the people just think just because they're leaving the experiment um, that it's over with. Well, no, it's not. Because um, like I say, you know, you can take that phenomenon with you. It can adversely affect your life. Um, and as Robert Bigelow said, you know, he first identified it as multiple serendipities and profound of coincidence. I mean, coincidence, which are highly, highly profound over a regular basis. Um, he was, that was the first thing to realize that something unusual was happening in his life. Um, and then came just a severity of terrible, the worst of bad luck, really, is, you know, it's the only way you can say it, really, is that one thing after another, after another, after another, and it ripped right through his family. And the same thing happened to a number of NIDS um, um, scientists as well. But you know what? The experiments they were conducting, um, I don't think they were completely aware of the possibilities of the problem occurring. Uh, and it's done through the process. They've certainly realised during Skull because, I mean, I talked with Robin Freud probably about six, six, seven months prior to him passing away from the Skull experiment. Um, and, you know, he also talked with my uh, associate, uh, Barry Fitzgerald, and um, he, he admitted that the phenomena never left. Though that these skull experiments came to a close because they said it was dangerous, um, they, it, it got became it, they lost control of the of the of the circle. Things came through which weren't um, uh, which weren't naturally to be experienced, and it's made an attachment in their lives. And they were with, with Robin uh, right to the end those experiences so it's uh, sometimes it's not always good a lot of this that you're talking about you've mentioned it in the context of the skull experiment you know in, in being you know a, a sort of paranormal phenomena and the uap stuff as well a lot of this is very familiar to people who do magic you know, ceremonial magic chaos magic that kind of thing um which i do as well uh, a lot of this is kind of par for the course when you're doing that and one of the things that we've been discussing on the vase discord recently is the possibility that some of these experiences particularly the uap phenomena when you're talking about close encounters um it could be some sort of accidental ritual you know and a, a ritual which has been taken place or done by someone accidentally but has still manifested some kind of entity it's the same thing i mean if you take stephen greer's work um having four mediums around a table a seance table and communicating and having phenomena manifest is really no different than c5 protocol where instead of just replacing mediums with people are meditating it's the same process and then something will appear you know and uh, 
But don't get me wrong, the manifestations are real. The manifestations is the phenomenon. It's not a pretend thing that you've just drummed up you know, as an illusion. It's, it is the real phenomenon. So it interacts. In a sense, it's summoning, in a sense of speaking. Um, and when it gets to that, then really you'll find that the exact crossover in, in occult and witchcraft and stuff where you know you bring things in you know the the, uh, the tupas and and things into into real reality through the process uh, of ritualism and um, and practices yeah i mean that that's really fascinating as, as well when you mentioned the tulpas because that was one of the first things that i'd uh, read about when i was started reading on these subjects when i was a kid you know is the ability to create thought forms which is almost like a scientific way of summoning a, a creature you know it's, it's the exact same process now when i think about it as making say a servitor or something like that when you're doing chaos magic um, it's it's just so interesting how all these different uh you know, manifestations of the phenomena are, are connected so profoundly it is there's no evidence for that i mean even though a bunch of psychologists got together some years back in ontario canada and created an experiment known as the Philip experiment, where yeah. you know they created a ghost, you know, a, a, um, identical to exactly what they they plan to do. So really, it was the beginning stages of Tulpa, um, and that's through the process. I mean, it was just a demonstration to show that yes, it can happen. Now, if we did that year, if we did that hundred years ago, it'd be known as you know as witchcraft and you know, and uh, the devil's work and stuff like that. It, it, you know, we can't throw that away, that it's in us. It's in us. Gatherings of people, it's in us. Like it's that old trait capability of how we can bring something into the physical world. We can, and it can be done. Um, but how much of that is actually playing out during the process of our interests and belief structure when we're highly interested in the subject of UFOs and the paranormal? What is there any attributes given us, you know, by us? And I think yes, there are some, especially when people, you know, I mean, how does the poltergeist when poltergeist appar reaches an apparitional stage? It's usually things that they know of. Uh, people have said it claims like the oh yes, I used to, I died in the house, or you know, it's an uncle that passed away and stuff like that. But how did they know it? Well, they get that information from the individuals. You know, and um, because someone somewhere would probably likely know about the information, and it feeds it back to us in a sense to re to re you know it makes us think yes, it happened. I mean, in Yorkshire in the seventies, there was a young girl who was only fourteen. She disappeared for eight and a half months, and you know the police had given up searching. The, they considered the worst uh, the worst had happened that she befell to some terrible act. And the family started seeing her apparition in the house. And that reinforced to them that she was no longer on the living plane. Until she knocked on the door. She'd run away with her with a boyfriend. <laughs> and I have to question, they were seeing the apparition, the whole family was seeing the apparition. And it was interacted to some degree. Um, so, you know, that's how it works. It's gaining the strength and imaging and understanding of how to present itself through those people, which had a tremendous amount of stress, as you can well imagine, living in that house, for the phenomena to manifest in a way that will cause more grief 
more stress, more vexation. And it was perfect. It's an engine. It's a, it's, it's a parasitic engine. And that's exactly what it does. And it's clever. There's a mechanism to it. And, uh, and we know now that, you know, this is what phenomena can do. So it's, you can well imagine how difficult it is to, for people to understand the experience, what's really happening or what isn't. Mm. I mean, it almost feels like the intention is irrelevant because I've heard you talk about um, crop circles before and how even crop circles that have been created by hoaxes, in, in inverted commas, can still sh show anomalous effects as if they were. Yeah. Uh, that is fascinating to me because we had Alan Greenfield on um, not so long ago and he said that there's no such thing as a hoax. He talked about Jim Mosley and the uh, Wanakei uh, Reservoir Flap where Jim basically called in uh, just for fun a sighting of a UFO above the reservoir. And that kicked off a series of legitimate sightings of UAPs, UFOs hovering above that exact spot. Which is, this is fascinating, isn't it? it is. Yeah, it's, this is this conscious connection, obviously, you know, with the individual. So basically, I mean, I tell you, it's a great example. Um, Channel 4 were doing a television show many years ago in the 1990s. A friend of mine was involved in that TV show. And he was asked to, to make a crop circle for the television program. And uh, so this, they had this little bunch of scientists there. So scientists went out to this empty field and uh, conducted all sorts of tests and there was nothing unusual or anomalous uh, discovered. And then he went out there and pressed in over a period of an hour or so uh, an incredible crop circle. And um, what was really interesting is that when they went back into that circle, there were so many strange and anomalous readings coming from that that location with the I mean it didn't have any before so he, he was seen to have been born through the process of belief um, and this is the this is exactly the thing you know so when people turn around and say there are no houses really yeah there probably isn't to some degree because you know there's a, there's a conscious connection in the environment and ourselves with it and it plays out by manifestation of phenomena uh, associated in its surrounding area many, many times. So there's a perfect example for you. And uh, it was pushed up actually by the researchers involved in that case because they wanted to try and prove that, you know, that uh, a fake circle can't have those type of, uh, you know, strange readings on meters and stuff. And they were proven wrong. Um, but then we, we end up into a scenario where we really do need to dip back into this area of crop circle research and start really looking into you know the effects of the of the on the environment by those participants you know so that's that's you know because many people go out there to crop circles pick up anomalous readings and think yeah it's got to be responsible by this 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 that's not the case you get those anomalous readings even by somebody who's pressed down the, the, the you know the the crop circle some of them aren't you know but uh, but some of them are and uh, but though that you will get anomalous readings in them and that's what's fascinating about it
think that there's been any difference in so if you think about how um, how much the world has changed in the last 20 years in terms of how everyone now has a camera everyone now is putting things on YouTube as someone who has been investigating this phenomenon prior to that you know pre say the, the the smartphones coming about and stuff do you think there's been a difference in in how the phenomenon manifests when now everyone has a camera everyone is is filming and putting it online and sharing does that have any as- effect on it do you think uh, well no no i don't think so much in regard in capturing the phenomena um because um back in the day when i first started you know we were dealing with negative film and you know the the process of investigation of that would be to you know we we'd have to analyze the negative film against the the photograph and look for numerous different camera effects, which you don't get now in, in certain effects. In, is there are other effects on the digital processing side on cameras, but we don't get the things that we used to get on SLRs or you know those type of cameras in the past. There were plenty of those photographs and images. Um, we have more now because everybody's got a personal camera in the pocket usually, we're connected to the phone, uh, which gives the opportunity of photographing the phenomena um, uh, to be a lot higher. Um, so I wouldn't say the phenomenon has changed. I think that our technology and we've changed. Um, because if you go back to a time when, you know, there were no cameras for people to visualize as a reference, they used to do drawings and paintings. There's over 5,000 ruled paintings, which date around about the third, 12th, 13th, 14th century with UFOs, and they are clearly UFOs in the sky. You just can't make it out to be anything else. And the, the, the original painters, was giving them, they were giving messages. They were telling us that, uh, you know, I mean, a lot of them back then thought there was a, a, very, a very strong connection to religious connotation in UFOs. Hence, you see a lot of biblical images, the crucifixion of Christ and, and stuff associated with uh, biblical monarchy, in a sense of speaking, and, and, and Christ. Um, however, you know, that's what they initially thought. They must have thought, well, you know what, I, I'm seeing it, so it's got to be godly, it's got to be angelic. Um, however, you know, if you actually do the research, not all of it was <laughs> not all of it was good, you know. But there was a very interesting incident took place um, in the 16th century in France, and it was the battle. It was a besieging actually um, in um, in France of Saxburg Castle, and um, <laughs> something very interesting happened. Two UFOs came swooping down from the sky. And uh, and everything just the, the besiege just stopped because they're just looking at these two objects. Those those two objects purposely went over towards the church nearby church and hovered, hovered just above the crucifix. Well, that was enough to strike fear into the opposing people who were trying to besiege the castle, and they they fled in fear, and hence Saxburg's castle wasn't besieged because of two UFOs, and and how they must have known by the act that they do that somehow they're going to change the, the belief structure of those witnessing in it to think that obviously it's associated to something religious. It's a very clever act, actually, because they've seemingly been associated to incidents in the past, be it Alexander the Great or many others, um, where they've 
they've seemingly lent hand or changed the path of a certain destiny to certain to certain degrees. Um, so yeah, it's you know they're very clever what they do. It's like with the the biblically accurate angels, isn't it? When you get into some of the descriptions of those, they're spinning discs or spinning rings within rings and eyes all over them, and th- these sort of things sound like something almost more mechanical or made or machined in some way. Well, you know what? You've got to consider angels didn't exist before Ezekiel. This is what people don't realise. It was Ezekiel that created the angel. You know? um, prior to that, there, were, there wasn't. I mean, everything that we read, and so it's just not true. You know, regarding the original scriptures of angelic beings, I mean, you might have call them, you know, if you want to look at other texts around the world, you might say fallen ones and things like that. But uh, uh, the actual angel, as we depict an angel in modern day, um, wasn't the actual case at all. It was basically come from the days of Ezekiel. Uh, but it is interesting because that was taken forth into history. And um, incidents of set to happen. It's a very interesting um, painting where there's an object in the sky and it's shining a pencil beam light, a yellow beam of light down, and it's hitting the forehead of Mary in this image. Um, what interests me is the fact is, is that the Pope is in the street and there's an angel whispering into his ear. And that whole painting is referenced to um, a, 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 knowledge, a knowledgeable incident that took place, a documented incident that took place, um, certainly known in the Vatican that uh, an angel spoke to the Pope, whispered in his ear. And this is depicted in the painting. The downside of that is that the, the, the whispering angel told the Pope to invade Constantinople. So his very next day, he made plans to, con- you know, to conquer Constantinople, and over three hundred and twenty-five thousand people were put to death. Doesn't sound too angelic to me, um, you know. The, so I always question uh, everything in regarding, um, you know, whatever it might manifest as, whatever you might believe it to be. I think it can have many forms and appear to be what you, you expect it to be sometimes. Uh, and sometimes it's manipulative, and that's a that's a prime example of manipulation. And did you say in that um, there was a beam of light going down into Mary's head? Because that reminds me of Philip K. Dick and Vallis, you know, the, yeah. the, the the stream of light that came down, and then that kicked off a biblical experience for him as well, didn't it? You know, with the um, there was the fish uh, round, you know, pendant, um, and and that kind of weird quasi divine experience. It is. It's quite popular, actually, references to uh, these pencil beams of light. You know, um, of course, we got pe- reports of pencil beam lights hitting the ground during the Rendlesham Forest incident. You know? But there are, there are hundreds of those cases worldwide. You know, lights that are beams of light, but don't act like a torchlight. They, they maintain its width uh, over the same dis- over long distances, so it acts more like a laser beam, in a sense of speaking, than any light. But it's a it's a beam of light we can see. It's an active beam, um, and there are reports that go back, you know, in in, in biblical days of those incidents happening.
While we have you here, Steve, I wanted to talk to you about the recent um, David Grush revelations that have been released just this week, uh, the week that we're recording this. So w- what do you make of all this? Like, do you think this is government in, or intelligence manipulation? Or is this actually the beginning of something, or something which could be this disclosure that people speak of all the time? Um, well, I don't think it's going to be a form of disclosure. I mean, though we have been living in it to some degree since the Brookings Institute was reported for NASA just uh, joined the Apollo programs back in the 60s uh, because they said, you know, you know, you can't tell the people of the world, but you must educate them. You've got to prepare them. And that's exactly what we've been done. You know, it's we've been prepared. It's everywhere the subject now. We can't live our normal days without it. So you mentioned somewhere the aspects of it all. So they've done a good job. Most people that have a, a sighting now will just say, wow, this is really interesting. I saw this, I saw that. And then five minutes later, it's like, well, what's for tea? You know, it's, it's, it's kind of, well, that's about it. And mm-hmm. it's a baseball circle. And they've done a great job on that, really have. Uh, and that doesn't, you know, they've had to do a drip feed process to do that. Um, also educating children in the UK, was, um, it's on the national curriculum to, to learn what UFOs are. Uh, over, over 180 schools in the UK actually utilised under <laughs> creative writing skills programme, which I thought was interesting, um, uh, crash retrievals. And he actually made a UFO and he made it look like it had crashed. And they bring this young kids out and they say, they teach them about not to go too close to it and who to go and talk to if you see something like this. And then they go and ask them to draw you, draw an alien and then they look at the fake pictures and stuff. You know what, there's like going on the meets the eye there. Um, but um, it's interesting the information I said, but it's not the first time somebody said this. Uh, and really, what is evidence is they at the end of the day? Well, it's zero. I can't, though that he, his credentials check out, okay? Yeah. He is who he is, and he has done what he said he's done. Um, but sometimes things are done on purpose, you know? Uh, and sometimes they rarely do they escape and get... If, look, if the press are all over it, Okay, I know now. If the press are all over it, then I always think it. Okay, it's a bit. It's a bit. Might be a bit hokey, uh, because the press will. The press are controlled. You see, so this is why the press were utilised to pull all the Pentagon stuff out. It's all controlled. That's all our stuff, by the way. It's Lockheed actually. Um, but the thing is, is, is that when stuff does come out and it needs to get out, the press won't touch it. And I've come across that scenario when it's legitimate stuff. So it makes me question, okay, my shackles are up on it. Um, I don't know what the outcome would be, and I don't know reasons behind it. Maybe it's just to generate interest, I don't know. And then they come across with something else a bit later on to manipulate that. Um, But, um, I mean, I'm a member of the SCU, the Scientific Coalition of European Studies. It's one of the the biggest think tanks uh, in, in the world, as far as I'm aware. I mean, could be one in Russia, better, I don't know. But it's got the likes of, you know, um, uh, Hal Potter, Eric Davies. Uh, Avi Loeb mentioned that uh, he had the same opinion as I did, you know, from the Galileo Project, that he's very suspicious because, you know, it's all great information, but there's zero evidence. You know, and really, at the end of the day, is anybody just telling us any more than we really already don't know? We already know it's just a mountain. It's just a stone added to the mountain we've got already on reported incidents of that crash retrievals. Yes, 
we know that um and yes you know they probably st they, i believe they probably started back engineering by 1948 as quick as 1948 in 1954 people were writing to Lockheed about UFO phenomena because through the 50s in America and especially into the late into the early 60s there was a hell of a lot of incidents going on and people did write into Lockheed and occasionally just occasionally they made a slip up and would say something in an official letter and one of them came from Lockheed saying some of them are, are our UFOs but not all of them and I thought well that isn't that great somebody actually got a truthful response just once and it gets buried away in the archives of military archives only to resurface over the last 10 years but we've got that document now so we know that okay well that's interesting yes they've got some wonderful toys and and stuff uh, but they're going to they're going to keep us from that because they can utilize it and they can make us think of anything really especially they fool the government uh, into releasing defense money in in regarding the threat <laughs> you know and millions can be pumped into this i tell you what they'll use those trillions for they'll use it to weaponize in space and so on and so forth yeah i mean it's all about weapons isn't it that's i think that's what makes me immediately suspicious of all of the disclosure that's happening like recently is it's all geared towards like funding the military industrial complex you saw the pentagon stuff didn't you when it first came out i think saw it right everybody saw it they made damn well sure that you know that the biggest newspapers in the world were going to pull that out they, they, not before that they never touched the subject forget it absolutely no way it's like they're purposely moving away from the almost like spiritual side or whatever you want to call it the side of it that we've spoke about uh, previously and earlier it, it, that links with the ghosts or other phenomena these 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 almost like spiritual profound experiences that people have when they encounter these beings that's all pushed aside that's all like that's never in the news what's in the news is it's a spaceship that we need to shoot they're taking away anything that links it to humans, aren't they? That they're wanting an external threat, you know, and from the threat, therefore, like Steve's saying, they can get the money. I mean, mm. it's reaching a fever pitch, isn't it, with the congressional hearings? You, you've got the new NASA task force. You've had the Chinese balloons. You know, it, it's it's just it's the, this 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 Dave Grush thing is just the next step in this sort of fevered build-up that's happening at the moment and and it does seem it does feel like it, it is uh building up to something which is going to be you know i mean what what you guys are saying really some sort of weapons you know yeah. spending or something yeah i mean you know what if you go back a bit you know when it first came out came throughout actually drip feed out from the ttsa and um the what the first announcement they did was a big public meeting with all academics and scientists there, thousand of them, in, um, in a place where they had a stage and a bigger screen you could ever think, think of. And up there on the screen was an image of what they said, well, what they were kind of in, in, in suggesting is the Tic Tac. The image of it, of that was a, a, a Mylar balloon, a number one Mylar balloon taken over Eccles in Manchester in 2005. It was one of my investigations. Um, so they messed up. And someone, someone took it and light blasted it on purpose to make it, you know, a little bit looking different. I only had it on one website. That was a Jeff Rents radio show website from 2004. And that's the only place on the internet 
and it wasn't anywhere else. So whoever did the, you know, wanted to pinch an image, that was a good one to pinch because it was nowhere else. <laughs> yeah. and, yeah. and the first thing is I recognised it straight away. I said, oh, gosh, you know, you just don't get this. You know, all these scientists, all these real academics and Chris Mellon, all these people, you know, and not one person asked a question. Hang on a second. You've got a 130-foot screen behind us with an image on it and nobody's asking a question where it came from, who took it. It's ridiculous. It was a staged thing right from the beginning. And that's what alarm bells me. It took me three months to get it, you know, and then it was the reporters actually eventually sorted it, you know, uh, and they sent me an apology. Oh, it was an accident. You know, <laughs> yeah. else, it was an accident. Look, they wouldn't reply for three months. But the fact is, is that everything has been trying to generate a threat. Threat, 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 threat. Do you know what? What threat? What threat is they? You know, I'm not aware of a collision of some sort. Um, I'm not anything in history. I mean, these things are pretty clever. They know how to dodge an aircraft. Seems we travel so blooming slow. You know, it's not exactly hard, is it? But, you know, blink of an eye and they're gone. Um, and yet there's such a there's such a hazard. So I think obviously what they're going to do is they're going to convince Congress of that and uh, an appeal for defence money. And that defence money will be utilised for all the wrong things. Um, but, you know, there seems to be a pattern of events taking place. And as we go head on into that, you've got pilots that are saying, oh, my God, it's something strange. Take a phone scrap. It turns out to be a Batman balloon. He's just a, a Milo Batman. Batman I mean, it's ridiculous. And no way would a pilot come forward and say, oh, this is really strange. Um, I mean, I have a, a relative of mine who was a Top Gun trainer. He flies civilian aircraft now to Australia since he's retired from that. But um, he started in the UK flying Buccaneers. Then he ended up on uh, the Tornado Wolfpack on the German border, lead squadron leader, and then went to Top Gun and became a Top Gun trainer. So when I showed him the or the video of the, and more, more importantly, the audio associated to the video of the Pentagon stuff, and you got those pilots going, hey, dude, oh, wow, man, that's great, oh, dude. He just knocked his head off. He said, you know what, no one, you just do not, that. Everything, is just, everything in the cockpit is recorded and goes off to high-ranking officers. You do not act like that, you do not talk like that, You do what you do do is you do a very formal description as to what you're seeing and trying to explain everything and, and associated to your readouts on the aircraft. And uh, he gave me a perfect example of that on another video, and I thought, well, that's massive different. But you know what? The Pentagon said the videos are authentic. But in a very clever way, they never said the audio is authentic. They said the video is authentic. Yes, I believe the videos are authentic. But I think the filming, I mean, look, you know what? They do it, they film it, they come back and they go, oh my God, it's all on radar, we've got it on tape. And then 10, 15 minutes later, a helicopter lands, they come and take it all. I mean, it's just all staged, you know? Um, and the thing is, the pilots aren't going to know, they're going to tell the pilots, it's, this is the new Area 51 out there. Yeah. You know, there's, no, there's no ships, there's no flyovers of civilian aircraft. It's a militarized zone for the Navy. You know, it's more than 20-odd miles away. It's 26 miles away. So you're not going to get see much from the from the land, you know, from uh, seeing, seeing much stuff. And you know what? They're not going to tell these pilots. The pilots are just going to think, what the hell? There's no way we must have anything like that. Well, 
Yes, we do. And we have had for a very, very long time. But the thing is, they won't know that because there's a, there's a separation in, in, you know, in conscious reality of what we currently know what our technology is. You know, and we, I mean, we're quite, you know, we're still blasting the people out to space in rockets and stuff, and that is well gone in the past. Everything went black, you know, it's just like, we've seen those, those scientific curves of, it, of, of technology, and it just goes like this through the 30s, through the 40s, through the 50s, through the 60s, and then it goes 70s, 80s, boom, and it just plateaus. Everything went black after that. You know, everything that we think, well, is technology now, is nothing, it's old school, we don't need any of this. You know, and that's that's the problem. It's the biggest problem for us. So yeah, I'm a bit hope. I think it might be a bit hope. I think what it was interesting was recently when you say about recent news is that NASA did get together with 20 scientific delegates from NASA to to talk and discuss about the UAP phenomena. That is a real is a real first. You know, they're showing an interest in investigating the stuff, uh, and now there's a public debate. It's available on YouTube to watch it. You know, it's you know, listeners should go and have a look at that. It's really, it's, it's, it's what they say and how they say. It's really interesting, you know. Um, uh, but, yeah, there's, there's public knowledge. And uh, so I think what they want to do is they want to gear up interest. Um, and yet we have to say, well, how much is the, the base stone where this was all forged from? How credible is that information? And this is what Abby Lowe was saying and others, you know, and I believe yourself that, you know, it's really, really interesting, but there's not much evidence, for, you know, for David's uh, uh, stuff at the moment. But I'm sure he's right. I mean, yeah, absolutely. I mean, of course, you know, it's all news now. We knew this years and years back. You know, we've had other whistleblowers that have come forward. You're just making a big hype out of this one. seems conspicuous by its absence is any connection here to the other phenomena in all of these reports you know in all of these investigations um we don't really hear about the connection between the more spiritual stuff like buckley was saying to the poltergeist like you were saying and yet we know that the government has done extensive research into things like remote viewing project stargate you know, your mk ultra mind control there must be somewhere people who are looking into this connection. I mean, the US government, the UK government, governments around the world have access to the best scientists, the best researchers they want. Why is there never any mention of this obvious connection, the kind of thing that you're doing your research into now and, and have made so much progress with? What Are they hiding it or are they not looking in the right place? Well, I think basically the simple answer is they don't want us to connect the dots. Right. Yeah. No. They've slipped up a few times and said something, especially when majors and generals and politicians have said, when asked the question about UAPs or UFOs, 
um, you know, what are they, what are they? And they turn around and say, well, how much do you know about PSI? You know, size stuff. You know, I mean, and that's a big giveaway question there, you know, yeah. because there's, there's inherently something to do with it. And they've studied this for a very, very long time, you know, and you have to question, you know, why, why did, you know, any advancing um, uh, army in the past lean into the occult so heavily in association with advanced technology? I mean, there is connectivity between them and, you know, and that's, that's known even now. Um, so I think they don't want us to create, they don't, they don't want us to think and make, you know, connect all those dots and put everything together and start working out. They don't want us to know that, you know, when they, they're at the manifest in certain key locations, usually locations of high positive magnetic anomalies, which are found around Earth. Um, you know, NASA called them, um, um, uh, the, well, they nicknamed them portals, but they're not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I hate the name portal, but... Uh, they're a diffraction region, and this is what they're calling them, electron diffu- sorry, a diffusion region, electron diffusion regions, that's, in, that's the scientific name for them. Um, but they're manifesting in areas that just suddenly will manifest or demanifest. So they're jumping in and out of our reality, but when they are manifesting, they affect the environment for a short period of time, up to at least 48, 72 hours, and they create gravitational wells. Those gravitational wells are measurable by specialized equipment and time displacement meters, which can, we have now. They're expensive and hard to get hold of, but when you have them, you can measure latency taking place in time. It's only microseconds, but it shouldn't exist. So we know that they're coming from seemingly another reality. They seem to jump in and jump out. Phenomena is not simply just a nuts and bolts thing. Though that they are seen in space, but there's no superhighway going backwards and forwards considering how many many UFOs are seen on a daily basis around the world. It's not happening. In fact, when we talked to SETI scientists, they said quite an interesting thing. They said, well, actually, space is remarkably quiet. (laughs) <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's the SETI guys. But they do know that there seems to be a hive of activity around the sun. You know, I think that if anything, you could utilize the sun's magnetic gravity there, um, which would be so extremely high, to utilize the sun as a gateway. Maybe the star hoppers or something, I don't know. But, uh, um, but one thing we do know is that they're manifesting in key locations on this planet and have been. Well, they knew about it. I know the U.S. military knew about it in the 1980s about that um, because they were investigating those regions. Um, and they're still currently happening today in those positive magnetic regions. They're, they're in places where not many people are. And when they happen, not only do you get UAP, but you get a high amount of uh, cryptid sightings and paranormal incidents and, strangely enough, profound disappearances. That links directly to Penny Royal, doesn't it? Have you have you heard the Penny Royal podcast? You know, with the Kentucky anomaly, yeah, and um, and then you've got the quartz crystals, and there you've got the Hopkinsville goblins. You know, you've got all these other cryptids. You've got the disappearances. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, and you've got you've got um, high uh, incidence of mental illness and that kind of thing as well. It's it's really really interesting to see how the land itself can affect exactly this is one of the major things I've been trying to tell people is that the UFO phenomena is more strongly associated geologically than it is the 
and people don't really get it. But you know what? Even when they tried to bring it out of the TTSA about how these objects move, you know, they thought they brought out you know the three methods of of of, of transposition. You know that they can travel in space, travel in the water, they can travel in the air. What they purposely left out, and I know the purpose left out because we've 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 already been in touch with the guys. Uh, and said, why have you left this out? And he said, because, you know what, we're trying to encourage scientific people to, to help out and come forward and, and, and apply their skills. If we were to add the fourth one, they might not even come because physics goes out the window. And that fourth one is, is that they can transfuse through physical matter. They can go straight into the ground, straight into hills, straight into mountains. You know, they can just transpose themselves into, through physical matter. And that is your beginning stage of identification of paranormal phenomena, you know? So uh, the transposition through, you know, through physical, through metaphysics. So it's, it's, it becomes a real tricky area, and that's why they didn't want to release that. But the truth of the matter is, is that, yes, there's a, there's a, a stronger connection geologically. Uh, but they don't want people to work that out, you know? There's too much... Um, that they could put together. So let's keep them separated. Let them keep staring up at the sky and the stars at night because they're not really going to get anywhere doing that. Um, rather than thinking about the connectivity, the, the, the physics behind, the mechanics behind this phenomenon, you know, and its connectivity, it, it thread it runs through all paranormal incidents, be it the cryptids, UFOs and so on. Yeah, I mean, it almost reminds me of like the, um, like it's a technology that they don't want us to access because it's within us. It's like they, they don't want us to know that within human beings, we have something which we can use, whether you call it magic or whether, you know, whatever you want to call it, whatever sort of frame or, or, or uh, lens you want to view it through. And it's, you know, it's the same as, as like, um, whether you believe it or not, the, the, the Wilhelm Reich stuff, all of his books and all of his writings getting burnt. It's the same as like Timothy Leary getting thrown in jail for one little joint. Um, I mean, there's that famous Bill Hicks quote, isn't there, about anyone who, um, I, I don't know the quote off by heart. I should probably, but I've watched that DVD enough. But, you know, there's that famous Bill Hicks quote about anytime anyone tries to tell us the truth, within yeah, we kill them. They watch us oscillate through this circle, but as soon yeah. as we tread above it and start gaining advancement here, this is when they step in. Yeah. Because they don't want it. They don't want people, you know. I mean, you know, when, when I talk, I've talked to some quite high-ranking people, and they said, how do you know that? And I said, well, I've worked it out. When, you know, the team's worked it out. They said, well, I got told that three years ago by Kit Green. I thought I was the only one that knew that. And I said, I said we know that, <laughs> you know, but we knew it. No, we don't have to be told. We were, we did the research, and we used experimental stuff, and we gained the conclusive information, the data. That's the most important thing, the data, uh, where it can get peer reviewed and tested. And the good thing about our work is, it, you can you can replicate it. You can go to the same places. You can do the same thing. You can use the same equipment, and you will get the same results. Over and over again so we know fundamentally what's that how much of the environment's been adversely affected by the manifestation of phenomena hmm. we started doing some field investigations um looking for anomalous places and 
the the way that we've been doing it so far is to look for we went for example to Anglesark, you know where there's round loaf and the neolithic so basically someone else has put the work in there to find thousands of years ago to find an area of power um, and the ley lines obviously sort of run through that area as well what's your advice for people who want to get involved in carrying out their own field investigations well if you want to carry out your field investigations it's all about timing you got to think like the ancients that's it. Not think like modern man. You got to think like the ancients, right? Now, you know, there's, there's a, a real big thing about okay, well, you know, when the sun fl- comes, they're lined up with the, this, you know, the solstice, the equinoxes, and things like that. And the sun is designed to flood the chamber. Those chambers, a lot of them are resonance chambers, um, and they're designed to for some people to sit in there. They're usually alcoved areas, which is where they sit, and on. Now, they're producing certain ohms back then. Now, are difficult to produce today because we've not got exactly the same vocal cords. Some of the ohms, like if you go to India, some of those ohms are like the Gudra Mantra, for example. It took, it took half a lifetime to learn the Gudra Mantra, you know, to practice because we've got the vocal cord, but we don't use it. And it took a long t- half your life of trying to do it to get to, to basically get that cord working again to create the Gudra Mantra, which that's just one of them, um, but there are numerous different others. And they generate a certain frequency. Now, this is there's a double lock system that goes on, I'll tell you, um, because we've done experiments like this. And what happens is, is that, you know, it's not always down to, oh, you know, it's great, you know, this is the time for planting and stuff like that. There is, these places are being utilized for certain things, and they're being utilized because and they can be used to thin the layer between our reality and another to the point of communication. These are like an ancient telephone box, in a sense of speaking. But it's a double lock system. So what has to happen is you have to generate. The resonance chamber's got to be in frequency. So, you know, you've got to make sure that has it been disturbed? Has it been rebuilt? And all those things, because everything will come into play. The less disturbed it has been over the thousand of years, the better. Um, and in a lot of other countries, like India and stuff, the you know, the sacrilege to to, you know, to to even mess with them, you know. But other countries have. I mean, hey, you know what? Well, look what we did to those Stonehenge. Other than we were slightly moved and fallen out, redid them, you know. And, it's just, you know, you only got something, move something, you know, 10 inches to the left and it's all out of tune, you know what I mean? So, um, and that's how that's how precision it is, it really is. Um, but some of these places that have a double lock system, and what that basically means is that when they were being utilised, the residence chambers, and they were attuned correctly, which they initially were, then there's a certain frequency generated in there and then what happens is, is another frequency that comes into play, and that is the rising or the setting sun. It's terahertz frequency. It's the only time we have terahertz frequency is during the rising and the setting sun. And why do you think people meditate mostly during sunset? It's because of the frequencies. And what happens is all the infrared disappears and uh, the frequency comes through as a terahertz frequency. When it floods the chambers, there's your double lock system. You have the frequency 
are in a terahertz frequency range of light and you have the other frequency generated by the on. When you combine them two, some very strange things start to happen. And we've had equipment in these places during these experiments. And what you have the capabilities of doing is recording sounds from the other side, not from our side, from another side. Um, and that's the starting point. The, there was obviously the people that were induced into communicating often took certain things uh, which they ingested, which would help them um, separate themselves to be allow them to have communication with the other side. Um, they were considered years back as communicating with the gods. In fact, 70% of these places were destroyed by humanity, ancient humanity themselves. Some of them, these pe some people around the world had bad experiences with whatever was coming through the void on the other side and they destroyed it themselves. So about 30% survived. Out of that 30%, probably 15% are left intact and attuned. The other 15 have been manipulated over a thousand years. Um, out of that, it's a, it, do you know what? It's, it's a simple mathematics game. If you, if you do the tests and do the time, you'll find that these things aren't just a pile of rocks in a location. They are areas. It's like an ancient communication portal, in a sense of speaking. Though I hate the word portal, but a diffusion region where the veil between our reality and another becomes very thin due to that process. And it was an ancient knowledge, which was utilized worldwide because they were all doing it all around the world. Uh, and communications took place, and sometimes, you know, all wasn't didn't always go well. Sometimes it was, you know, had benefits. Some are, some are uh, like a doctor's office. You know, if you take, for instance, some of the um, uh, the, the ancient sites in Ireland that oscillate at, say, you know, frequency of one one ten, one one eleven. Now that's that's a, that's a healing process sound. So what happens is under that frequency, and science scientists have been in there and conducted experiments, is that an open wound heals ten times faster under that frequency. That's what they should be doing in hospital. If you're in intensive care, they should be pumping 110 and 11 hertz down down your ears. Yeah, you can't charge as much money for that though, can you? Well, that's true. Ten times faster, but you know, open wounds. Wow. You know, these are surgical, like going to a doctor. If you go there, if you had, if you were injured or maybe ill or whatever, uh, and these places acted for that. The frequencies depend. You know, the ancients know it's all about. Like Tesla said, you know, it's if you want to know about you know a life, it's uh, it's all about frequencies and energy and that. So. And they must have known this. Um, like being a northerner like we are, are there any strange places in the northwest that you can recommend that we can visit to encounter any of these phenomena? Oh, yeah, um, Winter Hill, Bolton. There's a lot of stuff that goes on there. And that's a big transmitter up there. It's known as Winter Hill. It delivers Granada television pictures and things like that. And it's a huge, it's one of the country's largest antennas. But uh, Winter Hill is known for a lot of phenomena. I know it's had its, certainly had its fair share of UFO activity there, um, but there are a lot of accounts of paranormal phenomena being seen and cryptids, which have also been seen there. And uh, it's something that doesn't gone away. I mean, my first investigation there was 1997, I think it was. And um, and uh, the last time I was there was uh, was last year. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of stuff happening up there at Winter Hill. It's a, it's a, it's a rural location. 
Um, but uh, it is a lot of strange stuff. It's like one of those hotspot areas. There are a number of them around, the, uh, around England, you know, depending on where you live, you know. But uh, um, places like that, yeah, they have a, a long association with all sorts of things. You know, I'd look for cryptids, the paranormal, and UFO stuff to call it um, a hotspot of some sort. And, uh, and that seems to be a key location. Certainly at the moment, it's generating a lot of interest. Excellent. We're gonna have to we're gonna have to make a trip there then. That's our next next port of call. Yeah. Thank <laughs> you. Um, so uh, we asked this of all of our guests. Uh, Steve, do you have any recommendations for books, documentaries, films, televisions, music, even or other podcasts that you'd like our listeners to have a go at? Um, yeah, I mean, sure. I mean, um, I mean, for first off, uh, Phenomena Magazine, which uh, you mentioned at the beginning of the show in the intro, is available for download for free every month, as well as all the archive you can get every back issue for the last fifteen years or sixteen years or so. Um, and it's there on phenomenamagazine.co.uk, and uh, and you can just go on there and download. You can read it online or download it. But say uh, it goes out. We have in, in uh, for those listeners which are uh, which are not English speaking. We also have ones um, which are in Spanish uh, and other languages, uh, which are completely separate. It's not a it's not a reprint of the English one. It's completely standalone editors that we have, and it's delivered to different twelve different countries in four different languages. So that's probably one of the main places and my own website to, just to find out more about me you can go to stevemera.com um sort of just type type steve Mera into google and that will probably bring you up stuff um, and uh, we have an expo every single year which is the largest in uh, europe uh, known as the awakening expo it's held at bowler's exhibition center in manchester our next event is the 25th of august 26th and 27th um, we have Craig Daniels turning up, yes, which will be interesting. Um, and also we have um, multiple speakers from all over the world uh, bring, coming together to one place to deliver uh, some fascinating information. It's a bit different than your normal convention because we treat it a bit like a comic con. So it's a it's a family event. You, know, you can bring the kids. We have some wonderful. We have people dressed up in characters because I've always wanted to make sure that we can keep the youngins interested. And bring them forward into the subject. You know, see I'm, where we're going to be in thirty years' time. You know, who's going to be doing our job? You know. <laughs> yeah. So, but, uh, yeah. But if anybody else wants to first find out about, just Google Steve Miller. You'll you'll find a, a lot of different stuff out there. I'll link in the show notes to that, and um, you can find Vase at um, Instagram and Twitter. We're at Vase, and then Vase spelled backwards. So that's at V A Y S E E S Y A V. Um, you can go to vase.co.uk where you can get all of our episodes and all the show notes. You can email us if you have anything you want to talk about at vaseinfo at gmail.com. Um, you can download the soundtrack at Bandcamp and that is how you can support the podcast as well as we now have a Kofi 
um, Ko-Fi. Uh, the link's on Twitter, the link's on our website, and there you can um, throw us a bit of money if you're enjoying the podcast. Um, and if you become a regular subscriber, you can get access to our Discord. Um, and we just want to thank everyone who's been listening. Um, just to give a few by name, I know we've got some listeners in Berlin. There's Gal, Mo, and Gemma. Um, who are all uh, listening to all the episodes as we're releasing them. Um, Buckley, do you have anyone? Um, I'd just like to thank Rick Bennett for introducing us to the wonderful world of Steve Merrow because that's, it, was his, uh, it was his suggestion. So Rick's one of, our, one of our regular listeners and a friend of the show and he, uh, he recommended us. So I think it's important that we, uh, we mention that. And also the shout out to the people that are on our Discord. We've got a lovely little community there. Um, and it keeps getting lovelier so if you'd like to join in uh, on the discord then go to our ko-fi or ko-fi or however you pronounce it or just send us an email and say i'd like to be on your discord either way we'll sort it out and uh, and then you can you can chat with us about all manner of subjects all manner of subjects i usually end with uh, a question steve um just to lighten the mood a little but i've actually got two questions for you all right, so the first, well, yeah. first one is you mentioned poltergeist so of all the films that are out there uh, that deal with the phenomena in one way or another, what's your favourite? What do you th- Sorry, let me rephrase that. What do you think is the best? What do you think is the one that is the most oh, well, accurate? Yeah, good question, actually. If I was being a bit <laughs> you know, sarcastic here, I would say um, um, The Quiet Ones by Hammer Productions. Um, only because the character really is based on me and the word with oh. Hammer on <laughs> Okay. <laughs> It's supposed to be supposed to be a bit of between a parapsychological research team and a skull experiment. It's half and a half and a half. But um, uh, to be honest, I would probably say if it was a paranormal film, um, it's actually an old television TV movie which was never released onto DVD uh, or VHS tape. So if you want to get old of it, you simply have to find somebody who recorded it off the time for television, and it's called The Haunted. And it was a TV movie adaptation of the Smilled Family incident that took place in Pennsylvania in the US uh, some years ago. And um, uh, and the harrowing experts they had with a, a demonic entity. And it's a very good film, it's a, but it's a TV movie. If you look it, you might find it on YouTube. Uh, it's just called The Haunted. No bells, no whistles, straight into the story. And when's it from, did you say? It's, it's basically from the 80s. 80s it was right, okay. made. It was based on the uh, on the book, you know, the, um, uh, from the, I Live in a Haunted House sort of thing, um, but, uh, the true account from, of the Smill family incident. Uh, but it's a very, very good film, and it's very true to the story, you know, because I know, I know the story very well. Uh, and that would be a good film to probably find on YouTube, maybe, you know. It's, I think you'll probably find it somewhere on YouTube. But you won't get it on DVD and you won't get it on VHS. Um, but I'm sure, that, you know, for those who are interested in the paranormal, they're going to love it. Great. Well, we'll have to have a look. And if it was UFOs, it has to be close encounters of that kind. Oh, yeah. yeah so you know, like, many people realise, you know, that yeah, it's full of paranormal stuff, isn't it? You know, and I said, oh, did yeah, you like yeah. poltergeist scene? What poltergeist scene? Well, the kitchen, you know, the Hoover turned on, I go out, so the yeah. tax turned on. You know, there's poltergeist stuff going on there. Oh, yeah, and Spielberg did his work. He really yeah. did his work when he made that film, and he did a lot of research, and he actually put that into the movie. And uh, I found it really interesting, that the fact that, you know, um, all those elements, 
you know, about when the cricket suddenly stop and everything stops and suddenly that light hits that truck from the sky. You know, that wonderful aspect of everything in the surrounding Oz factor, what you might refer to as experience, when everything goes dead. That's the phenomena producing infrasonic sound. The audience birds hear it and go, fuck, no quiet, you see, so. Uh, but he knew that then, and he put it into the movie. So, yeah, Close Encounters still does it for me. It really does. It really has stood the test of time, that movie, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's great. It's great. Uh, the, uh, so the the um, the final question I have for you, Steve. In a podcast interview I listened to, um, oh God, a while ago now with you, um, there was a story about you being punched by a poltergeist. If you could, if you could speak to that poltergeist again and encounter this this entity that punched you, what would you say to this poltergeist? Never do it again. Yeah. <laughs> You'd be warned. <laughs> you know, um, it was in 1996. Yeah. Um, and um, even then, you know, after 13 years into the subject, I was still very skeptical. Still, I've yeah. become. I am. I'm not a skeptic now because I've experienced a lot of things. But I have to be. You know, you have to keep an even, you know, a kind of a cool-headed shoulder, really, because you're dealing with incidents, so you can't be biased about some of the stuff. But I nearly left the subject. I nearly walked out on that. I walked out on that case, actually, after that happened. And, um, I, and I'll be honest, it scared me to death. It really did. Yeah. And I remember it as sharply as I do today that, you know, I was a, I was a big guy, and it took a lot to lift me off the bed and threw me onto um, a dressing table, and and that was the punch in 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 the back, and I had the bruises to show for it for, for a couple of weeks. Um, but no punch in the back is going to take me off the bed and put me on top of a dressing table. It was like an electric shock at the same time. I only know that because in my early days I worked for NATO, and. Um, as an engineer, and you, you know, as, a, as an engineer, you get the electrical, you get electric shots now and again. Not many, hopefully, but <laughs> you, know, um, you know, you uh, you do, and uh, and uh, you get that repeller action. You know, like it throws you away. You know, because alternating yeah. it throws you away. They've changed it from DC now because DC used to be able to hold it and you couldn't let go of it. Yeah. Like, hang on, it's a bit dangerous. This let's change it to automated current, which repels you, and that's what it was like. I can only say that whatever hit me was a was a physical force, but like an electric shock at the same time, which basically just got me off the bed and onto this dressing table. And uh, I said nothing. I just ran. Yeah, I, yeah. Just, <laughs> I looked back. I thought, I must have looked stupid, but I ran. I ran yeah, for yeah. that. How I got out of there. I would have done the same thing. Door, and I sat outside, and uh, and I just couldn't understand. I thought, that was it for me. I was just out of the subject. I was never coming back. I thought, I can't control that, you know, and then it's, that's not for me. But you know what it's like, guys, you know. I mean, you give it a yeah. few days later and the adrenaline kicks in. <laughs> and you start, How does yeah. it do it? You know what I mean? And before you know it, you're even into it even more. But yeah. later, if it was to go back to that night, I'd say, that's it. I'm, changed. I'm not getting yeah. into it. Well, I'm sorry to make light of what was probably quite a traumatic incident. I just, I think the the image of it in my head, I just found quite comical that that, that it was almost so, so sort of pugilistic. Like, well, yeah, I look uh, back and laugh at it myself. Yeah. Really, you know how I just ran. I mean, yeah. I mean, God, there was no like TV show doing it. How stupid would I look? But um, yeah. 
but you know what that was the first time I'd ever experienced that and it did scare the hell out of me to be honest with you yeah, yeah. actual physical contact yeah yeah absolutely <laughs>